You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at edcorner.stanford.edu. So a quick introduction for our guest here. Many of you already know uh, Professor Bob Sutton. He has been teaching here since 1983. I hope that's right. And that's right. That is actually before I was born. So <laughs> Oh, it's already <laughs> happening. <laughs> he he has won numerous awards, which are in the handout today, and he's a best-selling and prolific author. He's written more than 90 articles and seven books. Um, a, uh, his background is quite interesting, and he gave me permission to say this. In you high say school... Say whatever you want. <laughs> are you sure? Yeah, go <laughs> in, in high school, he had a 1.9 GPA, which is less what? than... Is that right? No? Yeah, it was after my junior year. I junior raised, year. I raised it to 2.1 in my senior year. Pottery was very important in my grade point <laughs> average. I'm okay. not joking. So before pottery, it was a 1.9. That's correct. Which, which is less than half of what many of the students here had, I believe, in high Much school. Much less, yes. Um, and then, so he went to junior college. He, he, didn't, he didn't quit on academics yet. And he told me that what, ins what inspired him to kick it up a notch was that his father was getting excited that he had such a low GPA in junior college as well. And he, because he was going to go work, he was going to have to work for him if he couldn't get another job. Is that right? That's, this is completely accurate, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> so he kicked it up a notch. He, he started making all A's. Um, he got, with the exception of, I think, only one B, he made all A's from there on out, got transferred to Berkeley where he continued his... Um, A's streak, and then just, just right on through, and um, eventually got hired as a professor at the uh, business school at Berkeley, and then um, jumped ship uh, 1983 to Stanford, where he is today. Yeah, so. I, actually, I, was, I started at Stanford, and I went to Berkeley for a year, okay. and then I quit. So, I, so both Tom and I are Cal alums, but it turns out that Stanford's a better place to work, both of us having worked at Berkeley, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's true. <laughs> um, so let's... Uh, Oh, let's, let's talk about what we're here to talk about. Um, the, uh, the book, the latest book, is a best-selling book. It is on the, uh, it's the name of it, and I'm only going to say this word once. The name of the book is The No Asshole Rule. And it is a best-selling book on uh, number three on the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, and number two on the Business Week. In fact, um, the, uh, the New York Times uh, said, uses as its advertisement, the, uh, the, the, the title we can't print, and it shows a picture of the book and with, a, with a blackout over, over the word. So they're getting a lot of marketing out of that. Um, so I want to I wanna actually, we're, this is going to be an interview format, um, and I want to start on the subject of the title, in fact. And let's, let's go with that. It's a, it's, a bit, it's a bit provocative. It's a little bit scandalous. Well, I don't think it's that scandalous. So, so you, want, you want to hear why I'm using this dirty word? Um, so, yes. so, so, um, well, Mike, so it, it is one of those things that I didn't actually mean to write the book. It's one of those things that evolved accidentally. So the, the way that it started was that um, I just wrote a little essay for the Harvard Business Review. It was called More Trouble Than They Were Worth. And, and the main breakthrough idea was in the breakthrough idea section. By the way, none of those are breakthroughs. If you start looking at them closely, it's just a marketing ploy. And so I used the word there and got a lot of reaction to it. But the reason that I use the, the A word, or the word that you won't say anymore, is that first of all, let's face it, you can all remember it. Um, my last book, which I think still is an excellent book, was called Hard Facts, Dangerous Half-Truths and Total Nonsense. I can barely remember it myself, so the no asshole rule is a title that people can remember. Um, the other two reasons, the first one has to do with uh, sort of the, my emotional reaction. So when I hear, see somebody being nasty to somebody else, I don't say to myself, oh, what a jerk or what a creep. First, I say to myself is, oh, what an asshole, and then I censor. And then the last one is a self-control mechanism because one of the main ideas of the book, in fact, I think the last idea is that assholes are us, that all of us under the wrong situations are capable of being nasty. And when I turn into a jerk, I don't say, or I don't say oh, Bob, you're being a jerk. I use that to self-censor myself. So those are my various excuses, and uh, some people are offended by it, some people are not, but uh, most people seem to remember it, which I think is the number one rule in marketing. Right, that's, that's definitely the case. <laughs> um, so, so how do you recognize a jerk? How do you recognize a jerk? Well, it, 
So, so essentially, I mean, this is also one thing for all of you who um, are going to buy management books and write them in the future, is if you can find an original idea, I want to see it. I actually have never seen an original idea. Um, so a lot of the ideas in this book are uh, stolen or borrowed from the literature on bullying or psychological abuse in the workplace. So, um, so if you look at that literature, there's two ways in which they approach it. One is the way that I approach it in the book, which focuses on the victim's perspective. So I focus on, on um, sort of two main things from the victim's perspective. Do, does it, uh, is somebody who does this, does it leave the person feeling de-energized and demeaned? And then the other approach is, and people who study psychological abuse do this, they, um, they sort of have long lists. In fact, there's some researchers in the East Coast have a list of 60 different ways in which you can abuse people. And they tend to um, break into different um, characteristics. One is um, sort of just abuse, yelling, screaming. The, the other approach is sort of political backstabbing. The third approach is sort of treating people as if they're invisible. So there's lots of ways in which jerks can do their dirty work. But I tend to focus on the on the damage done to the victim. And then the other thing, which is also, I think, very important, is there's a lot of evidence that people who are demeaning, in especially the workplace, they tend to, if you will, kiss up and kick down. Okay. So one of the main ideas in the book is that one of the better tests I have for a human being is how people treat people who are of less rather than more status than them. And, uh, and so actually, there's a story in the book about Charlie Galunik, who is a graduate of our program and now is Head, like I'm so old that he was one of my doctoral students and Kathy Eisenhart's especially now head of executive education at NCIAD. He's a full professor. But, uh, um, but Charlie's sort of the classic kind of guy that he was on his way to interview for his Rhodes Scholarship um, Fellowship in, uh, in, on his way from, um, from Kingston, Ontario to Toronto. And there was this older couple who were there, and Charlie got up and gave him a seat. He didn't know who they were, just Charlie's that kind of person. On the bus? Uh, actually, at the train station. Train station. And, uh, and then when he got there that night, uh, it turned out that it was, the event was hosted <laughs> at the guy's house. So I think that's sort of the kind of person I think sort of qualifies as sort of the opposite. That's good. That's good karma. <laughs> but so, so by the way, the kiss up kick down, I got that from the John C. Bolton hearings, where one of his former subordinates, a fellow Republican, called him a kiss up. Um, kick-down sort of guy. So this is in the congressional record. That's where I got it from. John C. Bolton was, for those of you, you should know this, but who were, uh, he was uh, the United Nations ambassador who was not going to get appointed because he was such a jerk, and then Bush appointed him in an interim break. Wow. So anyways. <laughs> well, um, one thing that might be relevant for a lot of people in this audience, uh, we all know that there's definitely no, no jerks at Stanford, but... I would disagree with that, but that's okay. <laughs> There's not a lot of them, but they're everywhere. Right. Um, it's, a, it's a bad joke. Um, <laughs> but uh, when we're about to enter the real world, um, how can we deal with jerks, especially when they have more power than us? Oh, so, so this is one of those things. So in the process of writing this book, I didn't want to become a Dr. Phil-like character. <laughs> but if, if you look at my email, I mean, every day I get five or six emails from people who have been feel oppressed. So the, the first thing, and this is actually old employment advice that I actually first heard in Tom Byers' STVP seminar, um, the first Mayfield Fellow seminar. It wasn't even called. I'm trying to. Who is that guy who was from the law school who recently passed away? He can't remember either. We're both getting Lazier, Bill Lazier. Bill Lazier. So so the first thing that Bill Lazier said to us, I remember this like distinctly. So how long ago was this? Was this 11 years ago, Tom? 11 years, so I'm talking to Tom Byers for people on TV. So, so he looks at all the, the Mayfield fellows, and we called them the TVC, Technology Venture or something or another. And he says, remember, when you go to work at a workplace, uh, the, you should look at the people you're going to work with very carefully because you're going to become like them. They're not going to become like you. So related to that, if you want to avoid like being poisoned by a jerk or become one, when you interview for your job, you should look very closely at the people you're going to work with. So that's my first advice is to, is to avoid um, being around jerks if you possibly can. If you can't, there's a series of avoidance strategies you can use, or I guess coping strategy. The first thing is, and you've got to do sort of a power analysis, you should probably go and gently polite the, politely confront the person backstage. So th there was actually one of my favorite emails. I got an email from a woman who described, and I'm quoting her, the major asshole she worked for because he was a retired U.S. Army major. And she said he was very abusive. And what she did was she took him sort of like, you know, basically backstage and said, well, I'm documenting everything you do, and, it, and I'm not going to take the abuse from you anymore. And if you keep it up, 
I'm going to report you to HR. And she said that he went on abusing other people but not her. So sometimes <laughs> polite, polite confrontation works. Uh, the, the other thing, this is partly courtesy of somebody in the audience, is that, is that, is that I think that if you can't escape from people in the workplace, uh, if, if you should avoid them if you can, and, and there's, a, there's a lot of evidence that you just avoid contact with um, the particular jerks as much as possible. Um, so, uh, so what I tend to do is I tend to have phone conversations rather than in-person conversations with people who are jerks. I tend to do short emails with them. I would just avoid the contact if you possibly can. Um, those are some of the things that you can do. But, um, but the most important thing, seriously, if, if you're in an environment where you're feeling constant psychological abuse, every employment lawyer and every HR person will say, document, document, <laughs> document. And I, I just had a great example of this. It was actually from, uh, from a woman who's an animal control officer. And she described how they had a peer who was constantly making racist and sexist comments to all of them. And she went to her boss, and her boss said, I can't do anything. And then what she did was she, she put together what she called the asshole diaries. She got her co-authors, sort of, not co-authors, um, colleagues organized, her, her fellow dog catchers. And, um, and, and they um, handed these signed journals into their boss describing this person's behavior, documenting the time and date. And they said um, three days later that uh, the jerk was gone with no explanation. So that's, that's, I mean, those are some of the things you can do. The book actually focuses more on how to build a jerk-free workplace. But the fact is that uh, even in great workplaces, many of us end up in this situation. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about that then. Right. Um, is, there, is there such a thing as a, as a good jerk? Do you need them at all? And you know, if so, how does well? How well does that so play so out? the book the book actually has a chapter called, and I will quote myself, "The Virtues of Assholes." So you don't have to say it. And um, and it, <laughs> if if you went through research on how you get ahead in life, there are some times and places when being a jerk will help you. Like what? Well, for example, um, if you want to be viewed as more intelligent, it t there's a literature called Brilliant and Cruel. So if I said, "Well, Mike, you need to revise this script," that would not be a criticism. <laughs> But if I said, actually, I heard this example recently. Well, Mike, you need to revise this script. Um, what did you do? Take your stupid pills this morning. <laughs> that would that would be an example of me personally insulting you. And if we did a controlled experiment, I would be viewed as less likable but more intelligent by throwing in. Well, thank you for that. Throwing in insults <laughs> like that. But so that's one reason. Um, another reason is anytime you're in an environment where intimidation is part of the game. So if it's I win, you lose sort of environment, and some of you will go into reward systems where it's, it's rank and yank, and it's I win, you lose, and there's no incentive for cooperation. In those sort of environments, demeaning and de-energizing, since that's what assholes do. If everybody's your competitor and you really want to win, then you probably should act like that. As a caution, I would warn you, after you've won, you'll be at the top of a pyramid where everybody acts like that. So, so to me, that's the other sort of side of it that there's times when uh, being an asshole can help you get ahead, but you're still an asshole, and most likely you're going to be an asshole in infested environment. So when have you deliberately been a jerk? When have I deliberately been a jerk? Um, so there is an argument for, there's a lot of times when I've accidentally been a jerk. I sort of lost, I, I do have a bad temper. It's not like I'm a perfect little angel. If you read the book, you will see many examples of me being an asshole. I can, and there's people who know me well enough in this room, um, especially Tom, who could document some. Um, but but uh, I'm not lying. So um, so um, but one example was with Air France. Has anybody ever flown Air France? I've never flown Airflot, but I think Air France is one of the worst airlines I've ever flown. I don't know what other people have their experience, <laughs> but we had this situation where we kept trying to get boarding passes in multiple cities, and nobody would give us boarding passes. And finally, we were trying to move from one part of De Gaulle to the other, the worst air in the world, and there was 10 or 11 Air France employees, I was from all of my, my whole family and everything, and none of them would pay attention to us, and we literally were missing our plane. And um, so finally I said to my wife and kids, I'm going to start screaming at these people and being an ugly American and swear at them until they do something. So I started screaming <laughs> and swearing at them and pounding and yelling and being the classic uh, ugly American in Paris. And, and once they looked at our ticket, they realized, they said, you're going to miss your flight. And I said, I've been standing here for 20 minutes. I've been telling you that, but nobody will listen to me. So then I gave it over to my wife, who's a much more rational person. But honestly, if I were to replay that, I can't figure out anything else I could do because I believe I would still be standing there waiting for those air friends. And they're all talking, like there was no line, they were all talking to each other. And that was one of seven or eight employees like that with Air France. So I don't mean to bash them, 
but uh, they're my least favorite airline, actually. He, Sounds, sounds kind of like you mean to bash them, but... Yes, I do. The, uh, so were you speaking English or, or French? English. I, was, okay. I don't know any French. Merit, okay. I guess I know. <laughs> well, um... Chateauneuf de Pop, I know that. I know some of the wines. <laughs> okay. So, so in, is there any place within a, a normal organization, you know, may, maybe mm. not one of these pyramids mm. of, of jerks yeah. that you speak of, but is there any place within a normal organization where it's better? better to have jerks. For example, I, I don't know, on the, on the production line or... I, I don't, I, my general view is that creating a climate of fear, although some people will have a delusion and believe it helps them, on average I'm like against it. And I think I actually looked at the evidence um, that, that people who are nasty will get immediate results so they think it works. But if you look at the evidence, uh, screaming at people, demeaning them, making them feel de-energized, tends to drive them out of workplaces, uh, tends to make them work less hard, they tend to lie in wait and put their energy towards revenge or their energy toward avoiding being, being stomped by the boss. So in general, I'm not for being a jerk, even though there's people who will believe that it helps them. Okay. Now, now, the other side of it, which is part of the air in our culture, it, in American culture, we are so obsessed with being a winner that we will let in, people be jerks and even say, oh, well, they, they're winning because they're a jerk, when I would argue despite it, and we let them get away with it. So, so two people I can think of, one is Bob Knight, who I think is an incredible jerk. I mean, honestly, most of you are Stanford students. I believe if I choked one of you and it was caught on videotape. Bob, Bob Knight is a basketball he's coach. A, he's a basketball coach, no. the winningest basketball coach in NC2A Texas history. Tech. He's at Texas Tech. He was eventually um, fired by Indiana University. But he was not fired for choking a, um, a student, which you could... You can go and find it on tape. It sure looks to me, I will say my opinion, he is choking the student. And honestly, I think if I choked one of you in videotape, I think that um, Dean Plummer, as nice as he is, would have me out so fast it would be unbelievable. So, yes. and, and, and there's, there's lots of other people uh, who, who the same thing seems to, seems to happen with. Steve Jobs, who has many wonderful qualities, but, uh, but um, by all accounts, all published accounts, and, and I'm quoting Wired Magazine, is, is sort of well-known for being a jerk. And so from my perspective, we sort of let people get away with creating well, climates of fear once they're winners. And, and from my perspective, you're a winner and a jerk. You're still a jerk, and I don't want to be around you. And it's up to you folks who have jobs to decide whether or not it's worth it to you, but it's not worth it for me. Well, go, going along with that, do you feel mm -hmm. like uh, some of the qualities that makes mm -hmm. somebody a jerk, such as uh, confidence mm -hmm. or assertiveness, it, it, is, it, you know, can people get away from it? You know, would Steve Jobs be Steve Jobs if he didn't act I, like I that? I don't care. I don't want to work for him. Okay. I, I'm a, I, mean, I mean, it is interesting because I've been invited to give a talk at Pixar. Yeah. Um, and uh, we're trying to set the date, and I kept sort of bringing up the notion, so you know I called Steve Jobs an asshole in my book. Um, and they said, oh, that's okay, we have a jerk-free culture. And they wouldn't talk about it. Um, so um, so <laughs> at least one of the organizations, he's, well, he's, he now owns 7% of Disney, and they're part of Disney, that, that he's the major shareholder in, um, like, believes in having a jerk-free culture. So, 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 I, so but, I hope you but, don't want to go to Disney World someday. Well, well actually, Disney's a, Disney is different. Disney's a pretty nasty place. Okay. I mean, if you, if you, if you, if you, those of you who should know this. So let's change the subject. No, it is. <laughs> uh, no, it, it's actually, this is way pre-job. So I actually have um, a bunch of relatives in the entertainment business, and there's a great joke they tell in Los Angeles that there's, there's um, three homeless people standing um, by the side of the freeway in L.A. One has a sign that says, we'll work for food. The other one says, we'll work for money. And the last one said, we'll work for Disney. Disney, you start reading the published accounts, is a nasty place. As nasty as... It's, it's funny, it's the happiest place okay. in the world, too. <laughs> um, I, I'm indiscreet. I, I, by the way, uh, you know, it's like... Um, well, I, I, don't I actually kind of like Disney, but, um, but I've never worked there. So. Oh, yeah, it's a nice place to visit. It's because they, you know, th through, through fear and intimidation, they create the happiest place in the world. Okay. So, so going along with that, except not, earlier you were mentioning um, that Dr. Phil, uh, you, you have sort of a Dr. Phil approach now, or you've become Dr. Phil. No, I'm trying to avoid becoming Dr. Okay. Phil. Have you gotten a lot of feedback? Uh, a lot of people have been asking you for, uh, so, so for I get, counseling? I get, um, I, I could show you my email. I showed you some of them, actually. I, I get 10 or 15 emails some days, some days five emails a day, where people ask me for help in various ways. So just um, yesterday, just two examples. This is just yesterday. I got one from, from a woman who described in maybe a thousand words all of the ways in which her boss abused her and other um, folks. And she, and, and she was asking, which strategy should I use? And so I'm very careful to both say, well, I'm not Dr. Phil. That's the term I use. I'm not Dr. Phil. 
And I don't believe that Dr. Phil can cure those people on television in 20 minutes either. It's just for ratings. But uh, you might want to see an employment lawyer. You might want to document. So that's one approach. But I got a new one yesterday, which was somebody asked me, and this, this, this guy said, we're in a family-owned business. My son and I are both assholes. Can you help us? <laughs> and so this is like a first. So I actually know a number of clinical organizational psychologists. And, and I referred the work to them because I looked them up. They were like a real company, like, like a pretty big publicly held company. Um, not, not Fortune 500, but pretty big. And um, so, I, so I, and I, and I warned the person I referred to. I said, this person has very high rates, but is worth it. And it sounded to me like they needed it. So that was the, so that just since we met, what was we met Friday? Just, just since last Friday, I've got like a new, a new sort of form. On, on Friday, you were telling me about when you had that week, which was, uh, or, or maybe it had been a little bit earlier, about a, uh, a preacher in Texas. I'm from Texas, so that had mm -hmm. special interest to me. But, but um, he was, he was um, trying to decide if, if, if the rule was appropriate in his church. What was oh, 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 yeah. So, so, so first of all, that's, that's the biggest, one of the biggest surprises in the book. Is it, it has this dirty title, and I thought some Christians probably are offended by it. But there's a little group of vehement Christians. So there's, there's one guy who writes a blog that, that is about um, teachings in the church, and he described how he used the no asshole rule in church to teach Corinthians 1. And so that thing is like love is patient, love is kind, for those of you like me who wouldn't know what Corinthians 1 was till now. And, and he used this to lead a Bible study um, group in class, and he read from the no asshole rule. I'm not making this up. You can find it in this blog. And, and so his conclusion was that Corinthians 1 ones means don't be an asshole. Okay. So that was one case. <laughs> and, then, and then there was a, another one I got from a Catholic priest just recently. Uh, this may have been since we talked, who, who thought that they should use it in seminary training because assholes are a problem for, um, in, in, uh, in, the, in the world for priests because they have trouble with parishioners. They have trouble with other priests. So it's like, so like that. So I get the weirdest like, emails I've ever had. And before this, by the way, I used to be a normal business management professor. So I still don't quite know what I've gotten myself into in some ways. So, so clearly you've struck on a nerve and something that a lot of people um, can, can relate to. You, uh, you were also telling me about what it was like to release internationally and um, which, which countries had you had, did you have the easiest translation problem, which did you have the hardest? Oh, this is kind of funny. So I actually don't speak a lot of, so the French version, which is actually selling very well, they translate in France and it's doing well and everybody's very happy with it. In German, it's Der Aschlag Factor. It's also sold well in Germany. It sold 40,000 copies. <laughs> and that just means the asshole factor. But the biggest translation problem I had was with the United Kingdom. <laughs> and this, this is true. And I tried to convince them that um, in, in the United Kingdom, they don't use the word asshole. They think that's a part of the body. Um, only and they use the word arse or arsehole and so I had this big argument with my publisher that they should call it the no arse rule or the no arsehole rule and they refused to do it and, and, and then I've gotten three or four reviews in England like you know in the paper and stuff that say nice book but why did they call it arse so I, and I suggested that they release like a de-Americanized edition where they cross out asshole and put an arse I thought that would be a good PR stunt um, <laughs> they wouldn't do it which is another thing about the publishing business is that um, it's the most conservative business. It's like they're having trouble, but it's a business that deserves to have trouble. It is. They are so stuck in the past. They're even worse than the music business, which most of you know about. <laughs> well, um, to, earlier you said that perhaps it's best not to have jerks around, but then in your, in your book you also mentioned that um, perhaps one is a good idea. So what, what is one having one jerk around. Uh, so so th this, this argument, which by the way, is so there's some arguments in the book that are empirically tested. This is like the professor sort of has a fantasy, so I would warn you about this one. But there's a, there's a large literature on deviance. And what, what the literature on deviance shows, especially around performers, if you want to have a real high performing group, it's probably better to have a group where mo everybody works hard except for one or two bad examples who show everybody how not to behave. And in fact, if you remove the bad examples, the performance of the group tends to go down a little bit. Okay. So if you apply that logic to assholes, having one or two token assholes around who are probably lower status and lower power um, will be like the bad examples to show everybody how not to behave. And, and, and I don't know whether I completely believe this, but there's some literature on tokenism and on deviance that show that you might want you might want to have. Should them. you promote them to keep them in the company? I don't know. I think well, I think they're I think they're naturally occurring at a high enough rate that I don't think you have to worry about having a few around, frankly. So, um, so let's say you're a really small company, and uh, mm -hmm. perhaps somebody, perhaps many people here might might mm -hmm. start a, a small company, and um, 
you find out that early on one of your core members, maybe your first four or six, ten people, is a, is a, a huge jerk. What, what, what can you Fire do about them. that? Fire them? Oh, what if well, they're well, like well, a I, well, that's my first reaction. My first, but, but in general, so my argument is, and there's, there's a number of people in this room who have been involved in startups where this was the case, that there's, a, there's an argument that, uh, that um, in fact, the best way to keep the mouse to set it as an early norm. So, in fact, there's a company called Success Factors, and I think Tom was on the board that sold the, you, you sold the intellectual property to what became Success Factors, right? Um, I, what was the name of that company? Uh, Austin. Pain, but my wife called it lost in pain. Lost in pain. <laughs> but it, it's also funny, whenever Tom's involved with a failure, he can't remember it as well. He's got a really good, which is actually very healthy mentally, <laughs> by the way. Um, so, so anyways, so this guy, Lars Dalgard, who's all 39, and, and he's, uh, he, he's a graduate of the business school, um, he describes himself as a recovering asshole, by the way. So he, he became CEO of Success Factors, which uh, is funded by a combination of venture capital and um, private equity. And, um, and what he does, and this is, it, it, he's been there since they've had about 15 employees, is that um, he has a no assholes rule. And he doesn't just have it, he has these 14 rules of engagement that every new employee ha has to sign that says that, um, that they won't be an asshole. In fact, what it said, at least until very recently, was it's okay to have one, it's not okay to be one. And that's like in your formal rules of engagement. By the way, success factors, and it isn't just because of the no ass world. They have some other cool, they have a cool product. So the product was good, it just needed to go on the web. Um, they, um, it's the fastest growing software company, over 30 million. They grew from 100 people to 400 people this year. So they're doing very well. And, and, and Lars is great because Lars like goes on national tele television. He says, I'm a recovering asshole. We have people, he shows people the contract. I mean, he's totally explicit about it. And, and, then, and then he blows it sometimes, like he starts, the first time I met him in person, he said, you know, last week I had a bad week and I started yelling at some people in a staff meeting, which is, by the way, if you ever have been in a startup or will be in a startup, yelling at people at a staff meeting is not unusual behavior. If it hasn't happened to you, it will. Um, but the difference is that Lars said there was eight people in the meeting, but he knew that word would get out that he broke the no assholes rule, and he wrote a, a note of apology to the entire company. So, so I, I think okay. this is an entrepreneur who's serious about it. Another example of, so I, I have all these like email buddies. Another one is a guy named Lou Pepper to change industries. How many of you heard of Washington Mutual, the bank that's, so, yeah, so, 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 so I'm actually in Microsoft, in Seattle, giving a talk to Microsoft about the no asshole rule, which by the way, I'm just repeating what they said. They said they need to apply the no asshole rule at Microsoft. These are the, I'm just quoting their employees, and I was not under non-disclosure, so I can say that. <laughs> um, so, um, so anyways, um, so I get this email from this guy, Lou Pepper. He was CEO of Washington Mutual in the 80s, and he said that was the rule they applied in hiring there. Okay. So it is, it is possible. So I don't know whether it made them more effective, but it is possible to have an effective company that applies the rule. So, so the, this whole time we've been talking about it as somewhat binary. You either are or you're not. Right. Is that, is that really the case or you know, do, do all of us perhaps act like that at times and, and how, can we, how can we control that? Well, for, well, I mean, you're talking about more. I, I think that, I mean, this is one of the main ideas of the book. Is I, I, the, so there's something in psychology called the person situation debate. You probably all had introduction to psychology and were subjected to the person situation debate. And if you look at most behaviors, including a more aggressive behavior, it looks to me that like about 20% of the action is some personality um, characteristic and 80% the situation you're in. Okay. So, so to me, the, the two main things that turn people into assholes um, are one, being around aggressive people. So if you're, it's a contagious disease, there's a literature on emotional contagion. If, and, and, and this is back to Bill Lazier's point. If you're around a bunch of jerks, the odds are you're gonna become one and start acting like one. And then the other thing is I think that when many of us are under pressure, you know, time pressure, criticism, whatever, that I think that it, it tends to come out. One thing I would also say, with all due respect to uh, Silicon Valley and tech company norms, this is, is probably um, as prevalent in this industry as ever, anyone I've ever seen. Medicine might be worse, but not many are worse. <laughs> okay. Well, um, would that be a deterrent for people seriously considering working here? And, 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 and perhaps more generally, um, there are enough people listening to this. Maybe, mm -hmm. maybe you know, is there something that, as a community, that Silicon Valley could do to? Well, well, I mean, if you look at Silicon Valley, like we've got like a lot of the characteristics that that are going to lead to aggressive behavior and having people in bad moods. So if you're going to have people in bad moods, well, what do you do? You put them in I win, you lose game. That sounds like a lot of Silicon Valley environments. 
you uh, put you have them work ridiculously long hours. Being tired is one of the best ways to make people grouchy that I've ever heard of. Um, maybe you criticize them in public. So there's a lot of Silicon Valley norms. The, the, the other thing about Silicon Valley firms is, and, and there's actually, I read, read a great blog, blog posting from a woman named uh, Penelope Trunk yesterday when she was describing the problem with, uh, with Web 2.0. Is Web 2.0 are all companies like Google where you work 16 hours a day? And mm -hmm. so, like, so how are you supposed to have like a personal life in a situation like that? I, I, I had a Stanford, and, and Google is a really civilized place. I'm a huge fan of Google. They have the don't be evil stuff, and they and they'll tell you it's not efficient to be an asshole there. But uh, but I mean, if you have an environment where you never go home, I mean, that sounds pretty stressful to me. So so you know, it's easy for me to say, but uh, maybe people ought to calm down a little bit. <laughs> um, so, but uh, but it's a pretty nasty environment out there these days. Okay. Well, um, in, a, in a few minutes, we're going to open it up to questions. So I'd like it if everyone could start thinking of, of some so that I don't, I don't hog it all. And I love obnoxious questions, so go, <laughs> go for it. The more obnoxious, the better, actually. It's more fun that way. It is. Okay. Well, I don't have a particularly obnoxious question for you right now, but I, perhaps, perhaps I'll try to find a contradiction here in your two books. Um, Good. In, in the Weird Ideas That Work, he has uh, two, two chapters. One's called... Um, hire people who make you feel uncomfortable, even those you dislike. It seems like a lot of jerks would fall in that category. And then uh, encourage people to ignore and defy superiors and peers. And defy seems like a very confrontational word to me. So how do you reconcile the advice in this book with the advice in this book? Well, it, it, to, me, to me, there's, difference, there's a difference between being... So the question... It's actually a great question. And, and by the way, I've been taking a task for this like in a number of places. Uh, the first thing is that I promise no consistency in my writing. I just tend to tend to write what's sort of like, and, and well, you know, it's like it's hard to be consistent in life. So Jim March, who's one of my favorite and maybe retired Stanford faculty members, he always talks about consistency is o is overrated, and so I could sort of go down that <laughs> path. But but I will still try logical reconciliation. Um, so to me, there's a difference between uh, being different. So so one of the main reason I said is to hire people who make you squirm even you dislike. There's a lot of evidence that, um, and this is called homosocial reproduction or the similarity attraction hypothesis, that human beings automatically and naturally dislike people who are different than them. So from years of uh, teaching or trying to teach diversity in the Stanford classroom, I, I would sort of ask, well, what about the black-white thing? What about women versus men? And the two things that Stanford undergraduates would say they fought over, one is they hated people from Berkeley. I heard that. So how do you like that, Tom? We get that. And the other one was in the dorms, and I, I don't know whether this rings true, the tension between the techies and the fuzzies in the dorms. <laughs> what, what, so the one, people in the dorms know this. Um, what was one of the biggest sources of tension. So this notion that you naturally and unconsciously have negative reactions to people, uh, there's an argument that those people who are different than you might have different knowledge, so maybe you should bring them in. Now, the, the other thing about ignore and defy superiors, um, there's a lot of evidence that uh, when you look at the most creative companies, they tend to actually openly encourage um, ignoring and defying managers in a sort of, um, sort of like painless way. So, or, or, or sort of civilized way. So a great example of this is Amazon. So Jeff Bezos gives an award every month for um, employees who do, do stuff without asking for permission first. <laughs> so in a creative environment, and this goes back to 3M and Google actually now has a set of rules like this too, in a creative environment that, uh, that allowing people to act independently without checking with the boss first, to me that's different than um, when you defy the boss saying to the boss that, that you're an idiot, I hate you, you're useless. So to me, um, it's got more to do with the personal insults or ignoring people and treating them as if they're not human beings. So, so there's a lot, there's a difference between um, sort of creative friction and, um, and, and just sort of um, treating people like they're dirt. So I'm really right. fo focusing on like, Let's at least, you know, there's some people talk about happiness and likability. I'm trying to sort of cut out the bottom 10%. So let's at least get rid of the real nastiness in organizational life because, uh, you know, in, in the end, we're going to die anyways. We might as well not work in a place where people are so nasty. Okay. Well, with, with, uh, with that, um, we'd like to transition to some, some Q&A. So, oh, good. So uh, just remember not to be nasty. That's the... Oh, you can be nasty. It's more fun, but I, I'll you try just to be said, polite. Okay. Be nasty and don't be nasty. <laughs> Whatever the, you want. Is the advice here. That's right. Um, 
And uh, I do have a few more questions, um, if at any point it, it's uh, slim pickings, but um, I'm going to try to repeat it after you ask. So if anybody has one, um, right here. All right. Okay, the, na the nice way of asking would be, what did you do or what was your strategy to research? And the nasty way to ask it is, did you even do anything or did you just sit down and start writing? Oh, so that's a great question. So the question is, so like, like, how did I write a book on assholes? So, well, well, first of all, um, the way it started, so this is actually something I should have covered, is that I didn't mean to write a book on assholes, really. I, I wrote this 800-word essay for the Harvard Business Review, and, um, and the basic argument was, it was not very complicated, it was, uh, you shouldn't hire them in the first place, uh, don't let them get away with it, and, and, and to Mike's point, maybe one asshole is better than none, cause, and, but the, the amazing thing was the deluge of email I got. I got 300 emails in response to that one little article, and, I, and uh, so I realized there was a nerve out there. And so what I did was, I guess what I always did do is I, I reviewed the academic literature on psychological abuse, on workplace culture, on bullying, and sort of pieced that together. I talked to everybody I knew about it. I thought of m the experiences in my own life. This, this book is a much more personal book than my other books. And then I had those zillions of emails. So, so I can't even remember what's in the book and what isn't. I just get just this constant sort of deluge and I can't believe how long they are. So that was one of the things that's, I think I've written four times as much on my blog about assholes than I have in the book because it just, it just comes in. And a lot of times it's just cutting and pasting the email and putting it in the blog posting and say, look at this. Like, <laughs> so one thing, one thing to this point Mike didn't ask about is the most viral thing I've done. So like viral marketing is a big thing, viral marketing. Is I work with Guy Kawasaki, who's been at ETL. How many times has this guy been at ETL? Probably at least twice. Um, at least. At least twice. And Guy is like, it, it, and so in the book, there's a 24 item self test. With, um, and we put it on Guy's blog, and he renamed it the Ars Test, the Asshole Rating Self Exam. Um, <laughs> and so almost 90,000 people have taken it. And that's wow. like, if you know Guy's like sort of brilliance for viral marketing, that's, that's a lot of it. But it, it, some, th some books, it's like I had a force and stuff. It's, it sort of feels like I wrote this little essay and then just have been on this ride. So it's really been pretty weird. So in terms of doing the research, I did sort of what I always do, but I did less of it, I would say. <laughs> because I, this book is one-fifth um, as long as my last book, by the way. So it didn't have to be so long. But that was the only thing that I learned by the logic of my lesson. My next book should be 50 pages long and have an even more extreme obscenity on it if I want to sell more <laughs> books. I'm not sure I'm going to go there, but uh, so it, it was very easy to research. And Tom Kosnick, who's actually indirectly in the book, he's got his hand up. Anyway, I don't know. Find the asshole on page 17. <laughs> <laughs> no. Have you sold the movie rights? No. <laughs> No, no, I, you know, it's like, I, so I've got these literary agents, I got, I've got like the, a real literary agent, this, my, my literary agent is so, my literary agent is 76 years old, and he's a rookie literary agent, he, um, he he's done like, he, he, his first book was Weird Ideas That Work, but he was CEO of W.W. W. Norton, before that his name's Don Lamb, I, actually, I think I may see him tonight, and so, uh, so, you know, it's like they sell what they can sell. I mean, that's, that's just the way it works. But I actually think having seen The Office, that The Office is so good, I don't think it's actually necessary. I mean, that, that, that's one of my favorite TV shows. But, is there a kind of a YouTube phenomenon that you get, it, it could get people to uh, do digital videos of assholes? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a great idea. A quick plea to the audience and to the uh, you know, 10,000, 20,000 online listeners, please send all of your videos of jerks, or worse, to Bob. Yeah, no, I'll take them. <laughs> so so there, there, is the, there is the song, Asshole, by is it Tom, Tom Leary, I think? So I actually have that on my blog. It's like an incredibly funny song. But uh, yeah, there, there, if you go, it's funny because uh, iTunes censor them. So if you put an asshole, you get all these A-star, star, star things back. But you'll get a lot of songs. <laughs> In the back? your research, did you come across situations where corporations are institutionalizing assholes? Oh, yeah. And did you also come across situations where this bad behavior is also coupled, coupled with criminality? 
Well, the criminality, I mean... It, repeat the question. Oh, so the question... Why don't you repeat it, since I can... Yes. Is, are there times at which uh, being a jerk is institutionalized, and is this associated with criminal behavior? Well, the, I mean, the second part to me is more like a hypothesis. If you sort of read histories of Enron, I think that looks to me like it, it might have been associated with criminal behavior, but it might have just been independent. But, I mean, certainly, and, and this was sort of like uh, Mike's earlier question, which was a great question. I didn't answer it. Like, is it a linear or nonlinear thing? There's... There's sort of a continuum of companies. There's some I'm not actually going to name, but uh, I'm thinking of sort of like law firms and hospitals or especially nasty places where it does tend to be institutionalized, especially, by the way, in surgical training. There's a lot of nastiness. If you look at surveys of, uh, of surgeons, they're one of the nastiest occupations around. And especially in surgical nurses, it's amazing how much grief they take. So there are some places more institutionalized. But to me, it's sort of like a continuum. On one end, you've got hospitals and some law firms I can think of. There was one law firm that I worked with. I won't use their name. I gave a talk there. And when I, when I, went, to, when I went there, I thought they all hated me. Because every interaction I had with them, somebody would personally insult me. <laughs> uh, I'm not kidding. And, um, and finally, I started watching them in interaction with one another. And this was the norms in the law firm. And I've since found out about law firms. This law firm was especially famous for this, this kind of behavior. And, and towards, uh, it's actually the beginning of my visit with them. This is to your point about being institutionalized. The way a guy described to me is, we used to be a nice law firm where there was a balance between economics and humanity. Now we're a mean law firm where it's all money all the time. So to me, that sounds like it's institutionalized. But then there's other organizations. I mentioned success factors. Google, I gave a version of sort of like a more formal talk at Google. And I kept pushing them. I said, so what about this don't be evil thing? And they said, well, you know, we hope it lasts. But this is a place where it just isn't efficient to be an asshole. So, so there, there is a range of possibilities. And Nice guys finish last. Even though there's lots of evidence that uh, nice guys finishing. And to this point, to go back to the law firms, there was another night, there was another law firm I spoke at just about three weeks ago, and the guy who was head of the law firm. So, the, so this law firm is is in the top 40 in in the AMLA 100. So that means that the, the average partner is making about a million dollars a year. So this is like a million dollars a year. Probably most of you, at least now, think you could live on a million dollars a year. Um, and um, when you want to buy the house in Atherton, you decide that a million dollars a year isn't enough in the local insane mentality. But, um, but um, they had actually a famous law firm consultant in, not any of the brand names like McKinsey or anything like that. Um, and the consultant advised them, and I'm quoting, and this is sexist and asshole this, you need more big swinging dicks. That's the only problem I can see with your law firm. So there's some professional consultants out there actually giving that advice. And, 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 and as the guy, the head of the law firm said to me, this is a really nice law firm, and we actually like hiring women. So by those two standards, it's not going to work. So there are people, to your point about nice guys finish last and all that stuff, there are people who are reinforcing the stereotype and being paid well for it. Awesome. Kimber. Mm -hmm. Oh, I, I've, got, I've got lots of examples. The, the, the question is, um, are there specific cases in which it has, uh, being a jerk has, has caused losses? So, so, <laughs> so, so, so chapter two, which is, is on the damage done, so we didn't talk about that in formal detail, goes through a whole bunch of ways in which being assholes costs money. Um, it's very well documented that um, uh, workplaces have higher levels of abusive supervision, have much higher turnover, and more trouble recruiting. But I'll give you a specific example. Um, so the, the end of chapter two has a list of the total cost of assholes. And um, so I was talking to a local Silicon Valley executive about this, the, all the ways in which assholes might cost company. And he said, well, that's not just hypothetical to us. We have, we have this guy named Ethan. That's not his real name, who's one of our star salespeople. And he's abusive. So he writes flaming emails. He screams at people. Uh, one of the things that was especially upsetting to people in HR is both he and his wife had repeatedly called people at HR about reimbursements they were having, trouble they were having from their healthcare organization for less than $10. This is somebody who was making a couple million dollars a year. And um, so they got so upset at him 
that they put together the cost of all of the things that Ethan did, the secretaries he burned through. He, so, so he not only burned through a couple of secretaries a year, so in this case it was only one secretary, no secretary in the firm would work for him. So they always had to go outside and get somebody else. And then they had explained to every secretary so there'd be some hope that he or she would say how they were going to be treated. And they'd have to pay that person more money. Um, there was a time spent by HR. There was a time for anger management there, training. Um, there was also the, the litigation costs. So there actually are a lot of costs. And, and to this point, I spoke at an employment law firm called Littler Mendelssohn, which is the largest employment law firm in the country. And there's sort of a, a movement in the American law. It used to be that if you were a jerk but weren't sexist or racist, you could probably get away with it. But there's increasing signs that being an equal opportunity jerk or somebody who treats everybody like dirt um, may actually be an unlawful offense. So there's legal costs. The legal costs are likely to grow. So there's lots of costs. The, the other final thing is the Google effect. Um, so if many of us in this class know one of the happy things is that the job market's pretty good. I mean, uh, I'm hearing from Stanford students it's pretty good. Um, and Google, because of their don't be evil approach, sort of sets a standard a lot of tech companies I know are scrambling to try to be nicer so they can compete with Google. So there's also a uh, war for talent element to this, which we haven't, we haven't talked about. But the, I love the Ethan story because what happened was HR got mad and, and, and so the guy from the company showed me the report, like they put together, so this is another total cost of assholes, so eight, the people from HR spend three days putting together a report documenting all the nastiness, so that's another cost because HR <laughs> employees usually have a lot to do. So be, be conscious of your TCA. Your TCA. Mm -hmm. um, right, right here in the orange hat. Hey Bob, I have not read your book yet, so I'm not sure what the context was, but earlier you were talking about uh, <coughs> Avoiding the problem by talking to people on the phone and short emails and stuff, uh. and sort of getting away from your book, but going back to your background in psychology, that seems like one of the worst ways to deal with the problem. And I was wondering if you had any other thoughts. Oh yeah, so so that solution is not very good. Good question. Uh, so the, the question is is so I suggested that if you can't escape from the assholes you're working with, to do all you can to sort of limit the power of their venom and how it affects you. So if you can't get out, you can't stop them from doing it. You're, you're not sort of willing or able to get HR or other people to go after them. Uh, there's an argument that for sort of short-term control that you might want to do stuff like, um, like um, have like telephone calls instead of face-to-face -face meetings with them, schedule really short meetings. Um, another thing, there's actually an interesting literature on this about stand-up versus sit-down meetings. There's a, there's a little academic literature that if you stand up rather than sit down, the meetings aren't any less effective, but take about 35% shorter. So that's an argument maybe for removing the furniture from your office or something, if you're going or go into a conference room where you don't have to talk to the person. But I agree that all those are really bad strategies for people who are stuck in a situation where they're just trying to cope with it, which is why I always tend to say if you're in a situation where it's that bad, probably the best thing you can do is start looking for another job, which is another way, by the way, to avoid contact with your nasty workplace. You can spend time looking for a job. <laughs> oh, I, I didn't even talk about revenge strategies. Um, the other thing is ways that people get control is by doing explicit and implicit revenge strategies. So this feeling of control is very important. Um, and two strategies I heard of, one was the X-Lax revenge strategy, which was there was this woman, and she's in the book, she was a producer for an NPR radio station. Her boss kept stealing her food off her desk, which is sort of like a power thing. People take food from you. They order for you. They eat off your plate. Some of this, like the people in my family, actually, reminds me of. Um, but um, this woman had this trouble where her boss kept eating her food um, off her desk, so she made candies out of X-Lax and put them on her desk, and he ate them. So I thought that was a pretty good revenge strategy. But all those are bad. The best thing to do is to, is to e get out. ETL does not officially support that. Message. No, I don't support them either. <laughs> but, but, but I mean, the, 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 the fact is that if you're in an environment, this is any stressful environment, where if you can't control the main cause, controlling the way, the way you get stressors and avoiding them as much as possible. Um, and also, one other thing that I'm a big advocate of, which is also suboptimal, is learning not to care. So, you know, all the organizational culture stuff, you should have passion, you should really care about what you're doing. I'm an advocate of when you're in a situation where people are treating you badly,
just learn the art of emotional detachment. I, I, I told this to Randy Commissar, who's probably been in ETL too in the Absolutely. last year with, with Deborah. I told this to Randy Commissar, he claimed this was very Buddhist, but I didn't know that, learning not to care. So there's an art, is that Buddhist? It's a part of Buddhism, yeah, just your equanimity, your detachment. So, so that's a little different than the organizational cultural problem we get though, isn't it? You like to love your I hope that you're getting so, so Tom Kosnick said you should learn to love your assholes. That's the way to dissipate it. Ooh, that's good. Ooh. We, that's deep. Oh, I'm sorry. We have, we have time for one or two more questions. And right over here. Can we submit that? Oh, the, so nonprofits are terrible. How, how do jerks exist, exist in nonprofits? Non so I get a lot of emails from nonprofits. So, so one of the pro nonprofits are kind of like academia, where, 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 with all due respect to us, the problem is, it, and also hospitals, is that the people in charge aren't really in charge. So, so I'm not like the biggest believer in authority, but when you have a whole bunch of medium people with medium power, it's like they all start button heads against each other. So actually, sustaining cultural control in a nonprofit is even harder than in a for-profit organization very often. So you really actually have to be, be careful of it. So I, I get a lot of emails. One place that's even worse are, are actually elementary schools, because um, you've got a situation where you've got like a bunch of heavily unionized workers, and you've got management who has limited control over them. So, uh, so, so but nonprofits are very tough. OK. OK. Um, another question? Uh, you talked about some obvious forms of jerkdom, but mm -hmm. are there some uh, more subtle, uh, insidious forms that people might be on the lookout for? So, so this is a great. So Teresa asked, "Is there? Is it all explicit?" And in fact, so so this is one of those things that I'm actually I'm in the middle of a long blog post about this. So Teresa asked, "Good question." And and one of the most insidious things is this notion of treating people as if they're invisible. So I actually got this incredibly articulate rant from a local legal secretary about all the ways that the partners in the law firm treat her like dirt. And the one she complained about almost most vehemently was one of the partners who she would work with over email. And you know she'd do 20 emails a day with this guy. And every time he walked by her desk, he would treat her like she was invisible. So, so that idea of treating people like, like they're invisible is one of the worst things. That's one of the reasons, to go back to Berkeley, why came why, why I left Berkeley is that th that seemed to be the norm. Either you were nasty to other faculty members or you treated them like they didn't exist. Um, Tom's nodding his head. So, I, that, so Stanford's actually a reasonably <laughs> civilized place. Sorry, Tom, I didn't mean to get you in trouble. Okay. Go Bears. Okay, last question. Last, last question. question. Tina. Tina. So um, the success of this book would indicate that there's a pandemic of assholes. <laughs> So have you found any cultural differences that there are some places in the world that, it's, that this is more prevalent than others? Uh, so the question is, there's some places in the world more prevalent than others. So the, the best data I have is actually on regional differences in the United States. So it turns out, this is very well documented across studies, including a recent national sample. The nastiest people are in the Northeast. The nicest people are in the South. And sort of Midwesterners and Californians are pretty nice. But, but if you look at, so I saw this in a national probability sample of 7-Eleven, and also this recent sort of, this poll of abusive supervision, which is just a few months old. So that's, that's the place I know the best. The other thing, although I'm no expert in it, is that, um, is that one of the reasons my German publisher says the book has sold so well in Germany is it's a, he keeps claiming it's a problem in Germany. But, <laughs> and it's also sold very well in France. So that, that's just my, perhaps, stereotype. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank Thanks. you for coming to speak Thanks a lot. Thanks. Thanks, Mike.